Hello and welcome to Cruise Club. We've got the Need the Need to Podcast. This is episode 21, Magnolia from 1999. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Mancy. And with us tonight, Mike, we have not one, but two very special guests. First up, he was here last episode. He was here to talk about Eyes Wide Shut, a movie that took place over about... 36 hours or so. Now, to take to talk about a movie that takes place, a three-hour movie that feels like it takes place over the span of about an hour and a half, I don't know how time works in this. Very compressed timeline. With us once again is Mr. Tobin Addington. Hello, Tobin. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us once again for our continuing the top, the tippy top of Cruise Club, at least in terms of the critically acclaimed yeah. films between Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. For sure, for sure. Prestige directors here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as we learned uh, last episode, Paul Thomas Anderson visited the set of Eyes Wide Shut to pitch this movie to Tom Cruise. Because Tom Cruise saw Boogie Nights said, I really want to be in one of your movies. And he went over there and was just like, hey, you want to do this thing that's like kind of the opposite of what you're doing over here in Eyes Wide Shut? And Tom Cruise is like, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll do it. The rest is history. Also with us tonight is our resident theologian, our resident religious expert, which there, there boy, there is religion in here if you want it. Uh, we have <laughs> making his Tom Tom Club debut, although he will be back a bunch, so I hope you enjoy his ideas and his, his hot, hot takes. We have my original podcasting partner, Mr. John Brooks. Hello, John. Hey, guys. Thank you for coming back all the way to Tom Tom Club. You know, you and I were talking last night or two nights ago about when the last time we caught I was like, I can't remember. And I realized <laughs> you did, or you remembered that you did Prometheus with us, which yeah, Tobin boy. covered on another podcast where he was far more critical. You were on that real bad episode, I think, right? Yes. Oh, yes, I will. I still, I still bear the wounds of having to watch that movie a second time. Uh, oh boy! Well, John Those are two very it. different podcasts because I was <laughs> I, I, I couldn't stop gushing about it because it's you know one of my all time favorites. So two competing podcasts around the same time, <laughs> <laughs> same network. Well, before we dive into the three hour and eight minute, and it's, it you know it, it takes up an entire evening, it takes up an entire day of your time to watch this movie. Uh, John to- Tobin's been on the, the Cruise Club at least three times already, uh, so let's just get a real quick rundown from you. Do you remember the first? Tom Cruise movie that you saw, and do you have a favorite Tom Cruise movie? Oh, definitely was Top Gun. Uh, it's also the first CD I owned was the Top Gun soundtrack. Do I have a favorite Tom Cruise movie? That's that's a that's a tricky one. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia are probably, if I had to do it like a top five, uh, they certainly okay. w- would make it. One of those two may well be the top one. I love the Mission Impossible movies. I don't think I'd pick one among them, although Fallout was incredible. Rain Man, I don't know. It's uh, it's tough. There's so many good Tom Cruise movies, man. Like, yeah. that, that guy makes yeah. really good movies. So the problem is that he doesn't have a huge role in Magnolia, so I don't really think of it as a Tom yes. Cruise movie. And I don't think right. of Eyes Wide Shut as a Tom Cruise movie, because it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. Hmm. It's hard to put that into sort of the... Tom Cruise movie is kind of its own genre. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so are you asking me, like, among the Tom Cruise movie genre, what's my favorite? I honestly don't know, because yeah. last episode, <laughs> we had this conversation where we were talking about, like, this. I was saying that Eyes Wide Shut might be my favorite Tom Cruise movie, and I wasn't sure where to rank it. And this, again, like, I really, really, really like this movie, yeah. and it's, like, barely in my top ten for Cruise, because I feel like on this list that I cannot define and I cannot articulate, if I'm saying go watch a Tom Cruise movie... This might be. This is probably one of the best ones. It's just this is not the movie you go to see if you want to see a Tom Cruise mm. movie. Like I'm, I'm yeah. firm agreement with there uh, with with you on that one. So if I were to pick like a Tom Cruise movie, that's a Tom Cruise movie, and it's also like a prestige film. I think it's. I think Collateral is probably the one that I that, that I would I would gravitate towards. Like I think that's a great movie. Nice and super underrated. Amazing performance, and it's. 
totally a Tom Cruise movie. So Magnolia, the three-hour... Oh, God, I forgot that I have to... Sum- oh, Jesus. Oh, oh you get boy. to summarize this one. Oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> um, yeah, so we started... So, John, we have... Uh, we've changed this... We flipped the script a little bit on the Tom Tom Club, and instead of just, like, rambling about the movie for an hour, hour and a half, we talk about the favorite and least favorite moments, but we kick it all off with a, summar- a summary, a synopsis of what the movie's about... Well, and... well, then just tell them to go listen to every Amy Mann song and imagine it's, like, <laughs> alive, and then there's your movie. So Magnolia is a cross-section of lots of different people's lives intersecting, sort of like Crash, except not like Crash because it's sort of tolerable and watchable. And it all takes place <laughs> over basically an afternoon. Tom Cruise plays a motivational, kind of like the pickup artist, kind of like mystery, but motivational <laughs> speaker, sort of this aggro bro type of persona who is struggling with his own inner demons and he is trying to like his job the way he makes money is that he has seduce and destroy the way to pick up women wherever you want basically negging them doing this whole complicated system in a deleted scene that we will talk about uh, we see him working his wiles on maryland rice cub sweet maryland rice cub falls victim to his play Uh, his father is dying from cancer his father is being attended to by philip seymour hoffman so shout out p.s i love hoffman his father, who's dying, is married to Julianne Moore, who's going through her own stuff and, like, kind of suicidal and kind of finally falling in love with this man that she married for his money. There is John C. Riley as a cop who's got his own, like, everything sort of intersects and everything kind of doesn't. Uh, John C. Riley is a cop who's got his own stuff going on. He falls in love with a woman he does not know is a drug addict, and that's not going to end well. But the entire movie effectively takes place over the course of a couple hours, and it ends with uh, frogs raining down from the skies yeah. in biblical proportions. Yeah. Also, there's a quiz show prop plot line. There's Philip Baker Hall, who's dying of cancer also. Um, he might have molested, probably molested his daughter, who is the drug addict. There's a little kid, who, uh, Stanley, who is going to basically be the new William H. Macy, who's in love with the bartender, and he wants to get braces because the bartender has braces, and he's going to rob his boss because he just got fired. <laughs> this all makes sense and also doesn't make sense and doesn't matter to what we're talking about today, because the man <laughs> of the hour, Tom Cruise, is the motivational speaker, seduce and destroy. I'm going to say it once, then I'm not going to say it again, unless I'm probably going to say it again. Respect the cock and tame the cunt. And no pussy has nine lives is a tagline that I've never seen till today. And I, whoo, I love that tagline. That is a, uh, that is a powerful tagline. So that's kind of the movie, I yeah, guess. Did well I miss done. anything major? I mean, uh, you missed all the important things that happen in the movie. But well, that's sure. It's a general synopsis of, you know. I mean, again, it's 188 minutes long. <laughs> it is. I there's don't a, know how to summarize that. There's a musical number in the middle of it. So, like, you know, how about uh, that? there's, you know, there's that. It's very true, very, very true. There's also a uh, Amy Man music video where all the characters are in too. Like so, there's the ever divisive "Wise Up" uh, scene, which most of my fights about Magnolia have been about that one scene and and how. But there's also, I mean, she also does a music video called "Ever Save Me," which is yeah. also in this movie. Yeah. So, whew, okay. Oh right. So, it's in, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to start with a little bit of a bombshell. I want to hear from Mike Manzi first. I want to hear your favorite moment, Mike, because this is. I don't want to spoil. I don't want to spill your beans. This is the first time you've seen this movie in its entirety. Spill it. Just spill them all over the floor. Right? Mike texted me and said something like, Tom, this is is aggressive. I was like, oh, right, you've never seen this movie. (laughs) Oh, boy. I've seen... 
parts of this movie, and I, I wasn't even sure it was the same movie. Like, I remember a lot mm. of the, the quiz show stuff sticks out, and, uh, like, the opening with the coincidences and everything, but I must have just not pay, been wanting to watch it that night or not been paying attention. It just might not have hooked me at the time. But, yeah, so, like, you know, I get back from this freaking wild weekend in Vegas and remember I have to watch a three-hour Tom Cruise movie. Well, like a P.T. Anderson movie, right? That's how yeah. I think of this. Favorite part or you just... I mean, generally, I loved it. Like, I thought it was terrific. Um, finally get to see all the way through uh, how it's connected. All the performances are just incredible. Freaking Jason Robards. I had no idea uh, that was him. Um, but uh, best and favorite moment, I mean, it's got to be the frogs. Like, when... Yeah. I had heard about something like that was going to okay. happen, and I didn't know exactly what to expect and how it was going to uh, play out and how it was, you know what I mean, like how it all happened, and I just thought that was awesome. You know, I, I don't know, like I'm not, it kind of, in a weird way, like made the movie for me because I was like, I just wanted it to be weirder the entire time, you know, because I really like those weird sort of like, like I like what he did later with Inherent Vice, for instance, you know, and like that gets super weird and wacky, but also stays pretty threatening and dramatic. Mm -hmm. uh, so he gets there eventually with his work, but I was so glad that, that he kind of um, like went there with this. And uh, it really just like put a great sort of uh, end to everything else that was going on and provided a lot of strange closure for in a weird way that I don't know maybe we'll unpack later on but that no let's definitely... talk about the frogs now let's talk about I mean there's no way to get around like the, the elephant in the room is the frogs all movie long there are on screen the weather reports about how likely it is to rain as it rains harder the characters get more frenetic the rain definitely matches the mood and the tone and then well, all of a sudden and also rains. the weather reports frogs the weather report says it's going to be 82 degrees and there's the eight the eight twos all over the place um throughout the, the, the background of the movie and just dropped in at random places which is is, is that ezekiel 82 is no, that what it's we're exodus 82 um, exodus so exodus 82 is when god tells moses to tell pharaoh god says there'll be a plague of frogs uh if he doesn't let your people go that's that's when in the Bible the plague of frogs thing is addressed. Um, that's why it's all over the place. So like when you see the weather report the first time, it says chance of rain or whatever, but it also says eighty two degrees. Eighty two percent. It might be eighty two percent. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there's you know a bunch of eight twos um, strewn throughout. There's even a, a shot of Exodus eight two at some point um, in the movie. So it's sort of um, sort of hiding in plain sight. So if you happen to have Exodus memorized before you start watching the movie, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would have been a dead giveaway, I guess. But There's also very noticeably in the opening that, Mike, you mentioned the coincidences part, but when the guy is about to jump off the roof, there is like a rope that kind of right. looks like a lasso-type rope, and it has its in the form of 8-2. And I'm like, this means something, and I know that the frogs are coming, but I didn't still piece it together. And the only other bit of trivia that I read about the frogs is that apparently when this actually happened in Italy, I think Philip Baker Hall was there. Or somebody, wow. I think it was Phil Baker Hall, was there. So, like, this is a thing, because after the frogs happen, they Paul Thomas Anderson cuts to the super close-up, extreme close-up of the painting to yeah. the bottom, but it did happen. And it's like, no, but this actually, I mean, as crazy <laughs> as this is, something like this has happened. But, uh, Toby, what do you think about the frogs? I love the frogs. I have always <laughs> loved the frogs. I love the way that the the fr frog sequence is paced. I love how bonkers it is. I love how people don't always know how to take it. My question about the frogs is, and I'd be curious to, for your all's point of view, do you think someone could get away with the, like the frogs, when you went to this movie in the theater, the frogs were a complete surprise. And they shouldn't, nece they shouldn't necessarily have been because there were frogs in some of the like posters, but, but it was a surprise. And uh, do you think anybody could get away with that at a movie that, that has, you know, not all these people were as famous as they be, as they became, but 
a lot of them, they were certainly well known. Like, do you think anybody could get away with a surprise like this again? Just quickly, I just want to say, I think like this entire movie is just built on clout um, and not like in a bad way, but like oh, for sure. on like, you know, good faith for what he's done before and how Boogie Nights went and Burt Reynolds and he turned Wahlberg into a star and everything else. And so like just to see who and what he's playing with here and the scope that he's going for and the just relentless and exhausting pace. And, you know, this is a tough film. There's no doubt. But it's no, extremely rewarding. I agree with that. I mean, I think I remember when I saw it. I can't believe it's been 20 years since it came out. But I remember when it came out. And this is, of course, after. So, like, Anderson made Heart 8 and then he made um, Boogie Nights. And, and he built this sort of this this prestige, this clout of being able to sort of push boundaries um, and kind of do what he wanted. And the whole premise of this movie is insane on on the surface. Like, I want to turn Amy Mann songs into a into a movie, and then I want to also have a biblical like narrative underlying it. And it's going to star Tom Cruise as like a, a sex motivational speaker. Like, nothing about it makes any sense. And it got made, I think, by virtue of the fact that you know here's a guy who was you know kind of a groundbreaking new voice um, in cinema. That Boogie Nights was both a commercial success and a huge critical hit that he dealt with you know porn in like a major studio movie with a with a with a big release that it starred Mark Wahlberg being able to pull off a lot of insane things had already been something that Anderson had proven and when you you're going in with actors who at that moment were you know incredibly well-respected, um, like Hoffman and Philip Baker Hall and, and uh, Julianne Moore, etc., and, and Macy, the stars aligned for you to be able to get away with something like that. And so the answer to the question is yes, but it's not just like, you don't just hand, <laughs> hand a director that movie and be like, go make this, and people will go watch it. Like, it was the product of a lot of stuff that had been leading up to that moment for him to get away with it which is why I, one of the reasons I love the movie so much is he does so many crazy weird things and and it's for that reason like the reason I love the wise up scene is because it's earned it makes sense in the moment and I'm like this is so stupid and weird and like <laughs> but I love it uh and and it, and it just feels so authentic and that you can pull that off is incredible like a lot of people were like it took me out of the movie and it's dumb and cheesy and I'm like yeah but it's awesome uh, <laughs> and like just the ballsiness of doing it is incredible. Like, how can you not respect that? So apparently, Paul Thomas Anderson was given final cut of this movie by New Line Cinema before he even told them what it was about. Like, so and that's like, insane, right? Like, this is that's exactly my point. Like, do what you want to do, and he's like, oh, by the way, it's a pastiche of Amy Mann stories or Amy Mann songs, and also it's about the Bible, and it's all about it's, it's about everything <laughs> and nothing. It's not really about anything. I, I like at the end, yeah. Like, yeah, it's just about people. When the movie came out, he said it was his favorite movie. Um, that he's, or he, th- he thought it was his best movie and it was also his, the best movie he was ever going to make and I think yeah. that that is not true I think that mm. most, I was talking to some other friends that I think Slight a handful words. of the movies he's made since then are maybe better but also he has said recently, I think it was on a, maybe more than once, but I know that he, when he was on uh, Mark Maron's podcast, he talked about how if he had made it today, he would have cut out uh, so, several different, he didn't mention which ones but several different tangents in terms of mm. You know, he thinks it's a little bit too sprawling. Uh, but, Tobit, I actually want to go back to something that we talked about that you were talking about last episode when we talked about Eyes Wide Shut and the riskiness of Tom Cruise doing that movie, having come off Jerry Maguire with the Oscar nomination and also Mission Impossible's huge action star. Then he goes and does a 400-day shoot in London with Stanley Kubrick. This is, again, like a really kind of weird, ballsy, out there role. I mean, he got another Oscar nomination for this. What do you think, because I think that just sort of to continue 
the idea that you were talking about, you know, two weeks ago. What? Question mark? Yeah, well, to, it, fits, it fits in like he's in the risky mood because he's done Eyes Wide Shut. And to get to do – he can only fit a shoot as small as this one would be for him. Like he's – you know, he didn't he didn't need to be in a, a million days on this movie, right? So it fits really well in that – in the moment that he's taking these risks. And then it pays off as you say. Like he get Tom Cruise takes this role in 98, 99 in order to try for an Oscar nomination and possibly a win. And I think you could make some arguments about that too. But it – fits that you know that mode really well and then you know he's going to try and do the same thing in a couple of years with vanilla sky but basically <laughs> then goes back to mission impossible and you know, then does minority report like begins to stick back to his sort of le- the leading man stuff he's trying to sort of how big is the box that i can work in be like that's what that's the mode that it feels like he's in at this moment in his career and this to me it feels like a perfect choice pick a great director on the rise who's who's uh, as John said, is you know taken actors who some of them weren't even really. I mean, I guess Mark Wahlberg had been an actor in Basketball Diaries. He'd been in stuff before, but like to to turn uh, draw that kind of performance out of a out of an actor and and a, a bunch of other characters in in that movie. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman becomes Philip Seymour Hoffman because of Boogie Nights. And I think that that there's a it's it's not a bad idea to give yourself over to somebody like that and try something completely out of the box. Cruz did get a nomination. He you know you you said that he picked one. He tried to go for it. And Mike, I don't know. I did not look it up till right now. This Best Supporting Actor in 2000 is, like, there's so much crossover for what we've done. So, okay. Are you ready for this, Mike? And everybody. Everybody might know. I, don't, I might be the only person who doesn't know. Right. Tom Cruise Magnolia did not win. The only one that does not fit into our podcast oeuvre as of yet is Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense did not win. <laughs> okay. Over on PS I Love Hoffman, we just talked about Hilary Hoffman. Jude Law, How is the Peepin' in The Talented Mr. Ripley did <laughs> He's not He's great win. in that. He's great in that. It's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. Upcoming... Fun. On Hanks for the Memories, Michael Clark Duncan in the Green Mile right. did not win. Ooh, okay. Oh, right. oh, oh, yeah. But the winner, <laughs> and Mike, it is a movie that we recorded with John. This was our almost. This was our lost episode. Yeah. If you remember, yep. it's an episode we recorded with John. Oh no! And then his Don't audio got it got all speckled and spackled. Michael and then Kite. you and I did a recap episode Those of the conversation we had. Rules and that dumb My cider house. cocaine, Michael Caine in the Cider House Rules won Best Actor in a Supporting <laughs> Role that year. Freaking Paul Rudd sneaking in there at the end, looking <laughs> yes. all handsome and shit. Toby McGuire I also do want to say Amy Mann was nominated for Save Best Me. Original Song for yeah. Save Me. Tarzan by Phil Collins. Or what? the movie Tarzan, Phil Collins, You'll Be in My Heart, won. And that was when Blame Canada Gate happened, because... <laughs> oh, the, for uh, South Park? Yeah, because Parker and um, uh, Stone were, like, super pissed off that Phil Collins won the Oscar over them. <laughs> Which they deserved to win, to be honest. Like, that should have won That is a great song. The whole, the whole, all the songs in that movie are amazing. The other uh, nomination is Best Original Screenplay Lost to American Beauty. Uh, being John Malkovich lost American Beauty there, and I mean, you know, I know that's that American crazy. Beauty was beloved at the time. <laughs> that's just crazy. I don't, I don't know crazy. that uh, history has been kind to that movie, but American Beauty beating being John Malkovich and Magnolia and Topsy Turvy, I don't know, but a Mike Lee movie, and also The Sixth Sense is like, that's a, I mean, we've talked about on a couple different podcasts, I think, how 99 was like the craziest, the best year for movies. year, oh my god, yeah. And if you look at... The nominees, yeah, it's that's ridiculous. Yeah. Also, we we're talking before Toy Story two, uh, also that year. <laughs> that's so. right. And the so, Phantom Menace. And the Phantom Menace. And the, the Matrix. Star Wars movie. Oh, and the Matrix. 
Toby, what about you? What is your favorite moment, your favorite part of Magnolia? This is hard because there's so many parts. And every time the new, because I knew we were going to have, you were going to ask me this question. So as I go through mm-hmm. the movie, I think, oh, no, this is my favorite part. Oh, no, because this movie. So Paul Thomas Anderson kind of bracketed my college experience. Boogie Nights came out when I was a freshman. And then this movie was like my senior year movie. I've seen this movie a lot. And I, so, so uh, yeah, my favorite. <laughs> Um, okay, so here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that my favorite, I mean, really my favorite's the frogs, but for purposes of our conversations, I'm going to say that the, my favorite is the opening sequence with yes. uh, Ricky Jay mm-hmm. talking through the various tall tales. It's a, it's a moment, it's, it's a sequence that some people I remember at the time were pretty critical of, like this, what does this have to do with the movie? And we spend so long with all this stuff. And first of all, it's not very long. And second of all, it really sets your expectations in the template for the whole rest of the movie. And without that, I don't think the the save me singing or the frog scene would, would feel as unified to the movie as it does, given where he chooses to start this movie, the kinds of stories he's going to tell. And then just the way he shoots them. I mean, he, he uses like all so many techniques in the, in that opening sequence, it's dizzying. And then you realize, Oh my God, that's going to be the whole movie. Like he's going to keep doing this for the whole movie in the way of like early Scorsese movies or like they just ne- the camera never stops. There's, it's always moving. It has the feeling of a movie, but maybe, Made by a person as if they might never get to make another movie again. I'm going to put it all in this movie. And I think you get that in a microcosm in that opening sequence. I love how they're all shot sort of in the style in which they take place. So like the first one is sort of like a silent black and white movie and so mm-hmm. forth and so on. And then the you know, one with Patton Oswalt is in a tree is shot more like in the 70s because that's when it takes place. That's just really great stuff. You know, I was going to save that as well for mine because I'll save mine for a little bit, but I would just think, I think the same thing we sort of talked about on Eyes Wide Shut, how the opening of that movie of following them around the apartment and then sort of switching POVs and suddenly it's her movie, now it's back to his movie and turning off the music, like, in both of these opening sequences, you know exactly what the movie you're watching is, and you are kind of out of breath already, and it's like, oh boy, I have another three hours, like a full three hours, after this like 10 or 12 minute opening sequence. Like, this is exhaust. Like, it's it's a good exhausting, but it is exhausting. Yeah, it, it asks a lot of you. I mean, we keep talking about how long this movie is. Like, I feel like, for me, this movie moves more, much more quickly, I think, because there's so many different points of view that we end up in. You know, but, like, this is, like, I mean, Return of the King, Godfather 2, Wolf of Wall Street, Titanic, Adventures Endgame. Like, Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. These are all three-hour movies. Like, three-hour movies are not, you know. <laughs> chapter it, it's, two, what's, to my chagrin. Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, this is just like Avengers Endgame, guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the well, Avengers Endgame why, of PTA movies. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's why it feels so odd that... I, that Maybe that because this movie is about such this the subject matter in this movie doesn't usually get a three hour running time, which is part of what was in Congress about that. Yeah, I agree. I think you know one of the, originally one of the things I thought I was like my least favorite thing is sort of like the breakneck speed in which this starts, and you have to sort of feel like you're keeping up and everything. But I love the balance with the audio, with the music, and everything. Like I don't know, there's some kind of medium reached within myself while I'm watching the frenetic visuals, but listening to like the soothing audios and stuff. And mm-hmm. this is this is after that sequence you mentioned with like the coincidence incidences but like when when we start getting introduced to the main characters i just yeah like i i was worried that i wasn't going to be able to sort of keep up with the movie but i feel like it does a great job of acclimating you to like how you need to watch it for sure john what about you what is your favorite part your favorite moment scene line anything you want to say favorite part of magnolia well i think i've tipped my hand a little bit here because um i kind of already said but so i'm gonna i'm gonna 
go on a little bit as to why of course. I, I just love the, um, the the wise up sequence so much. So I, I've been a I've been an Amy Mann fan for quite a long time um, uh, since before. An Amy like, fan? Uh, yeah, a man fan. That's what we call ourselves. <laughs> uh, the the manatics, manatics. Uh, anyways. <laughs> It's not even a thing. I'm just making stuff up now. Um, I don't know if you guys really know Amy Mann's work or her music. She she was in a band in the 80s called Till Tuesday, um, which was a cool like new wave band from Boston. And um, she always wrote really interesting narrative songs that felt like stories. That's sort of her mo, even when she was in this kind of weird new wave hair band. Um, and then she when she went solo, really kind of honed that craft in terms of, of writing songs that have characters in them. And Anderson obviously feels the same way. Um, he, he writes about, you know, how Amy Mann's music inspired Magnolia um, in the liner notes, and that some of the dialogue from the movie is lifted directly from Amy Mann's songs. So there's like, there's, like, characters and actual lines of dialogue that come directly from her songs. And one of the things he says about her, which I think is pretty spot on, is he says, like, often I've been listening to an Amy Mann song and I hear a line that she wrote, and I, and I swear to God I've had that thought before, like, as though she's, like, ripping thoughts out of people's minds that don't even know they're having, and, and that you can put yourself in these characters. And, like, often these characters are really depressing, <laughs> and, and she writes this, like, these, with really clever wordplay uh, in her songs that, that seem on the surface to be sort of innocuous, but, but they have this sort of undercut of, <laughs> of like, oh, that's kind of brutal. It's a song called Driving Sideways that talks about, like, hitting scan on the radio so you can sing along. And it's like, it's that whole like chaotic scatterbrained mess <laughs> that is at the heart of both Magnolia and Amy Mann's, Amy Mann's songs. And so Amy Mann has like always been about sort of trying to, trying to dig through the, the emotional mess of people and, and find some like shared common humanity. If that's like, if that's, if there's a thread of all of her songs, that's sort of where it is. And so Magnolia is, you know, really is that come alive. And, and I think, Part of the reason why I love the Wise Up sequence is that, like, if you watch it, it sort of is, when it cuts away from each character, like, each line that each character sings is sort of a reflection of where they are at that moment in the story. Mm -hmm. um, so it, like, divides up the song among all these characters, and it still works as a, as a cohesive song. And you, and you kind of realize that, the, you know, the story has driven them via kind of her world, right, into this into this one moment and that's part of the reason why i think both it works and it's also necessary again it's earned like it gets to the point where it's not jarring it's not that weird it's a very it's a weird movie from that first sequence and you're like okay i'm not watching a typical you know prestige right. drama here there's something else going on what i love about it is that like had it not worked the movie would have been a massive failure like the fact that that scene is in there and it, and is pulled off to me speaks of just how successful that movie is that Paul Thomas Anderson was trying to do something insane and like actually made it work and that scene because it doesn't stand out because it doesn't stand out like a sore thumb like it works is is uh, smoking gun evidence right to the <laughs> to the whole thing kind of coming together I like the idea I wish more people would do it of lifting certain songwriters as inspiration for movies. I, I, I feel like it, it came close, like the only movie that really came close to this in terms of that sort of innovation is the uh, I'm Not There, uh, the movie about the various Bob Dylans, um, mm -hmm. which I thought was a brilliant template for like how you should make 
a, a musical artist's work into a movie and not like the biopic Walk the Line, Ray, which are fine movies or whatever, right? But the thing about uh, I'm Not There is it, is it looks at Dylan as like a, as a, as a, from every angle, right? As Dylan, the, the father and Dylan, the celebrity and Dylan, the songwriter and Dylan, the songs and, and, and makes a movie out of it. And like, I feel like it's been attempted by a couple of people, both wildly successful, if incredibly, ex- you know, sort of experimental. I'd love to see more of it when we talked about what it took for Paul Thomas Anderson to get into a position where he could make this movie, I doubt it's going to happen very often. But like, I could think of a number of songwriters who would make for the premise of a great movie, right? Just like take characters that are implied in those songs and build a movie around them. And I, and I think that would be a cool... Since Hollywood seems to be out of ideas at this point and just like buying anything they can, <laughs> like Monopoly or Battleship, like let's make a movie about that. Like Candyland, no. Go to songwriters, right? <laughs> like Try that out. See if that works. That makes perfect sense. They've been adapting books for a hundred years. Why not exactly. adapt songs? I mean, that, it's wonderful. And, and I especially like that sequence because we don't need the characters to meet each other. You know what I'm saying? Like right. everybody yeah. doesn't right. need to know that they all are. Oh, we're all going. No, like and that, it's that, for the that's audience. almost the point, though, right? The point yeah. is that there's this universality. Like they, it, it comes together in the Plague of Frogs. Like that's when they first have a, a unifying moment. But it's also telling us that they are experiencing a shared trauma or a shared pain or whatever through the use of that song. And the other thing I saw, that I'm going to have like a little runner-up. The, the other thing I really love about this movie, um, my favorite part, so to speak. So this is at the height of William H. Macy gets screwed over in movies era. Um, <laughs> so there was like this whole like five or ten year period where like the way that Sean Bean dies all the time, like William H. Macy played the character who like was a sad sack or just like was a good guy and just got screwed over every yeah. single freaking time. And Magnolia was like the the pinnacle of the William H. Macy get screwed over era. Um, a friend of mine in college, uh, he and I used to make up fake movies and make fake posters for them. And we just like hang them around campus. And so we'd use like... Man, early... That feels like the most you thing I could possibly Oh, it was so imagine. much fun though. And so, so we came up... So in order for William H. Macy to have a movie where he doesn't get screwed over, uh, we put him in a movie called All the Hookers, All the Glory. <laughs> and that's like just the title of the movie. And just like William H. Macy just like doing cocaine and like hanging out with hookers and like everything goes great for him. Uh, and that's the entire premise of the movie. And I, I think we... we co-starred it with a couple of like starlets of the day whoever it was i can't remember who was like a starlet of the day in 1999 but it's a fond memory i have of our i still make references to that to him to this day uh it never never gets old so your second favorite moment from the movie that william h macy it's like that it's the that it's the 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 height of william h macy gets yeah i was just gonna say like your second favorite movie your second favorite moment is that you made another movie that isn't this movie that redeems for smashed face (laughs) william h macy but it wasn't just this like it was fargo like every movie he was in and boogie nights and boogie nights everything like poor william h macy was never and then maybe it's because he knew that his wife was going to go to prison at some point and you know uh, (laughs) well i mean he was the cooler in the cooler a a guy who would roam a casino and just (laughs) give you bad luck (laughs) right right he had the cooler applied to his career basically or his characters lives they all just uh suffered that poor poor hands of fate and and he was one of the mystery men who were like all losers you know so (laughs) i am going to say i mean my favorite moment i think is what tobin said is the opening it's the first you know 10 minutes or whatever it's the well then why'd you watch the other three hours because i wanted to see if it got better and it didn't (laughs) but what i will say is it's because we haven't really talked about him yet enough uh the the reason why we're here mr tom cruise i think 
his journey from being all bravado and all bluster to sort of having that veneer, that facade cracked by the reporter digging up the truth, and then Philip Seymour Hoffman getting a hold of him, which this is like the most, in a movie where frogs fall from the sky, <laughs> to call an 877 number and somehow get patched through to the man, like, I know that they get disconnected very quickly, but it's like, that is the most unbelievable thing in this possible movie. The journey he takes from being, you know, the guy that women begrudgingly want to have sex with and the one that men want to be to suddenly bawling at the, the bedside of his father who he has not spoken to in like years and years and years is in probably what like 15 or 20 minutes of screen time like remarkable to top it off i was reading today that philip Seymour hoffman said that his his tears in that moment are genuine because apparently the words that Paul Thomas Anderson had written for Tom Cruise to say that Jason Robards there as you know his die his father is dying this man is not spoken to Tom Cruise didn't like them and Paul Thomas Anderson was like well just you know what would you say like when your father died like what what were you feeling what did you want to say to him and so he channeled all this like that's all like kind of not improvised but all written by Cruise and so like Philip Seymour Hoffman on screen there is actually crying because it just felt so real and raw. And for this movie to be about eight or ten maybe different main characters, to have the one that we're watching this movie for, and I know that's probably true of if you picked if you had like a John C. Riley podcast, or if you had, you know, like the Phillips Hoffman, Hoffman, like the Hoffbros did, like whoever you're following, like has that kind of payoff, but like it's just remarkable to see his journey here and just his absolute like evisceration of self and just I can't it's it's so it's so good. I even feel like he starts at a level here we haven't seen him at yet, or we he's been at a very short period of time in the movies, and it's usually like when he's exploding and he's angry or something, and he's never channeled it in this way as like a manipulative force or like as a as sort of like he's 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 using his charm and his charisma like for evil in this movie, you know, and like it's so. It's, it was so jarring for me to see that right out of the gate with this with this character, and I was not expecting it to be this aggressive and sort of in-your-face and, like, relentless. Uh, and then, yeah, like you say, at the end where he is just, like, completely deflated and collapsed and everything, like, it, I buy the entire journey. Like, almost every scene feels, I don't know, like an episode of his show or something. Like, it's crazy because he just goes through so much change in every sequence that he's featured in. And uh, it's a remarkable feat, I feel. I think one of the reasons why that first, the Frank T.J. Mackey scene, like the, the first real big monologue um, with him on stage, why it's so kind of revelatory is that Cruz has always built, he's always had this like intensity that's right below the surface, right? And like a lot of his career as an actor really has been centered around that. So like there's this damaged person underneath right that's like right. that kind of shows on his face but it never comes out and and a lot of the, the characters that he plays are really are really sort of a in some ways like built around that like ethan hunt like obviously has gone through a lot right and and it's always right there and that and that sort of stony intensity what i love about that scene is that i it's, I, it's the first i remember because it's it's simmering all through eyes wide shut, right? Like it's it's just festering through eyes wide shut, and then it, you know he shows up in this movie, and I think Paul Thomas Anderson was the first one to really tap into that intensity and like push it out of Tom Cruise and like have him scream it outward right onto a crowd of people, and I think that's what was kind of so staggering about seeing that the first time is that he recognized something in Cruise that I don't think any director ever had before. He saw something that we've all interpreted as being sort of 
um, just his sort of silent expression and realized that it was a real pent-up energy that needed to be sort of manifested in this new way. I think that over the last few movies, we've really seen a new side of Cruz. I think this is something that we were talking about in the Eyes Wide Shut episode, but I feel like he is doing things that we really haven't seen. Like Jerry Maguire is, and I, I think we talked about this last episode, like it's it's a type of romantic lead that we hadn't really seen other than maybe in Far and Away, before that Mission Impossible, sort of the perfect culmination of where he had been as an action star, then Eyes Wide Shut strips all that away and it's sort of like this kind of caustic look at toxic masculinity. And then here, it's just like tapping into that, like exactly what you're saying, John, like that just that that screaming, in yelling inner self and just getting that out, out on on film over these last few movies he's really sort of covered the spectrum brought it in a lot of different ways and it's it's fascinating to see growth in an actor that i think like you were saying before and like a lot of people say like you know there's a tom cruise type of movie it's the action movie it's the one where he runs it's the one where for better or worse like it's going to have great action scenes and then it's going to be sort of filled with whatever like there's a there's kind of an expectation you have of a tom cruise movie and i feel like this five-year stretch or so and maybe it extends we'll see but i think that this is a very different type of series of movies than he will ever have at any point in his career and that's also in large part the fact that he's working with like two of the greatest filmmakers who ever have lived right so yeah man what luck like remember early on joey when he he worked with um like everybody right out the top right he was in like a couple of film and ridley scott the, and tony the, scott the, the scott brothers like the scott just, brothers yeah and, and like he was getting all these opportunities and he was in all of these working with at least maybe if they weren't prestige films these were very well known and respected directors who wanted to work with him and like we didn't really see that with hanks for a while you know like we still really haven't honestly seen it with hanks yet that's still we're not there yet but like here he is again you know kubrick and pta like back to back you know and so i I don't know i just think that's terrific all right so now we have heaped a lot of praise in this movie and think we will probably have more as the episode goes on but let's (laughs) try to flip the coin over for a second i will start just by saying my least favorite Mm. moment of the movie and this is again this is one of the, the the great films of our time i think it irks me in a way, in a very slight way, that things don't come together a little bit more. John, I think what you said before about, like, it's the universality of it all, like, you're all experiencing the same thing in your own world, like, I like the beauty of that. I just kind of wish that there are so many threads here that, whether it's Paul Thomas Anderson saying that he wished he could have cut some out, or just the feeling that they're so disparate and so widespread, and I just kind of wish that they converged a little bit more like i don't mind where we wound up i still think this is a great great movie but i just think that it could have come together a little bit more cohesively and would have made this like one of the truly best films of all time you know what i mean like i feel there's just a little bit more that could have been done in some way i don't know i see where you're coming from and a lot of people again who don't like this movie like that is also part of their i mean there's people who like are smart and don't like it and there's people who are idiots and don't like it right and like the, some of the smart people and all of the idiots say the same thing. That like, <laughs> and I'm not, you're, you're one of the smart people making this criticism. Um, well, thank so, you. So the two things, the two things that I will that I will say is, in part, it's it's sort of the biblical structure that is at fault there, or or that's being played out there. But also the sort of adherence to the character in a song structure, because like no songs no no amy mann songs don't end with like the happy ending and it all worked out like it's 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 just a snapshot of like a a moment in time for a person who's being 
created in the course of two minutes or three minutes or four minutes, whatever it is, in the course of the song, right? And and when the song's over, right, it's not like, and here's the happy ending in the last verse. It, you know, it doesn't work that way. Same is true of the Bible. Like, one of the things that I think was really insightful about what he does with the Plague of Frogs, one of the sort of consistencies, one of the consistent tropes, especially of the Old Testament, uh, is that miracles occur when things are really bad, right? When things are at their worst. So when someone's like in a moment of desperation, like that's when some weird shit happens. So like when Moses is like completely freaked out and doesn't want to confront Pharaoh and like all the Israelites are slaves, like that's when the miracle happens. Hagar is like in the middle of the desert and she's homeless. Miraculously, a spring wells up in the desert. And she's She can drink. And a lot of that is is, you know, he's capturing the moment leading up to the miracle which and the miracle is is totally something that uh is is dependent on the observer uh in terms of extracting meaning from it but for all these people like it's the thing that just makes this like crazy moment in their lives a little bit crazier for everybody and like that is the kind of neat happy ending right your problems aren't ever like your problems aren't all that matters right there's like other stuff happening out there and to remind you of this here's this plague of frogs and that sort of is the bow that everything's tied up in right it's it's not about resolving the problems it's about sort of resolving the the anguish uh that the characters are going through so i do i mean i totally understand i felt that way i think the first time i watched it i kind of had to yeah. meditate on it a little bit to to kind of understand why uh it had to end the way that it did but yeah, a resolution to any of those would have been cheap and arbitrary, uh, I think. And I also do want to add the disclaimer that I've only seen this movie in its entirety once before, and that was... Okay, so I've told the story, I think, very briefly. <laughs> I know that Mike knows this story. Mm-hmm. I rented this from the library. This is in my summer, one of the summers in college, when I was trying to watch all of the great movies, and I remember very vividly sitting down. It was an afternoon... This is not an afternoon movie. This is definitely an evening... <laughs> night movie but I sat down in the afternoon with my best friend growing up and both of my parents and my mom walked out of the room when Tom Cruise comes on screen and I was like that "That makes sense I understand that (laughs) and then the rest of the movie I was sitting there like awestruck but also like oh my dad doesn't get this I don't think my friend gets this I know that I don't get it but like I appreciate it and then I remember it ending and then (laughs) them just being like so that was something right and I was like we're never going to speak about this again and then it was (laughs) 10 years later or whatever, and I watched it again last night. I am sort of stunned at how much I remembered. I think that's partly because I just remember... I think it's a great movie that's very memorable and, like, weird shit. Like, you're never going to forget the frogs fall from the sky, but, like, character arcs and the quiz show, Mike, like what you were saying, like, there's stuff in here that I think just gets singed into your brain. I do want to add the disclaimer, that the, the point of the story being that I've only seen this movie twice now. Maybe if I watch it 5, 10, 20 times, I will sort of acquiesce to it i'll give into it and be like oh it's fine that nothing resolves i understand that's the point now i am one with the universe i am the man of tai chi (laughs) that's reference yeah Yeah. great movie i kind of like how it how it just sort of like fades fades away almost like to me is how almost like a song fading out in a light but like also you know after that like cool opening and everything like we just pick up with these characters at the beginning of of any normal day you know what i'm saying so like we're coming into the movie in the middle of a life like it kind of felt natural for me to just sort of like drift in and out of their lives for a day and a half or whatever it was and then yeah, on on with it or whatever, you know, on to another movie or watching someone else's life for three hours or something. Yeah, and we start with tall tales that 
not, not to pile on Joey, <laughs> but we start we we start You're with wrong. tall tales that are like that don't fit together and may not be even be true and you know are weird and have these these eccentricities and and then the fact that it was sort of inspired by an album like albums don't even you know even concept albums don't necessarily fit together you know perfectly that's part of the sort of leaving you space to make the connections is I think part of the power of the movie and I I worry that if it were too directly tied together that you it would lose some of the I think as John is saying like the allegorical power and like the the little bit of distance that leaves you kind of scratching your head saying oh I gotta figure that part out again and you know I think that that's it's it's gutsy for him to do it that way but I think it makes it makes for a better movie look I don't want to I, I I get it I get it uh, <laughs> I also do want to say like this is another one where it's like it's difficult to pick a least favorite thing and that's yeah, the thing that's yeah, totally. on a grand I scale I can point that and, and actually sort of feel confident as opposed to for eyes wide shut hey I don't like that they have uh, window air units in their apartment because aren't they supposed to be rich WTF oh, up with that oh what yeah no, yeah, ruined we the got whole into movie that. for me I, I know right Tobin what about you what is your i mean i i, I don't want to ch- i don't want this to be difficult i know that favorite was difficult for you is is least favorite difficult as well well for the kind of opposite reason i suppose the one storyline that i have always felt the least connected to that uh, and I, I there may be a couple of reasons why but it's the claudia officer jim storyline mm-hmm. laura waters oh. storyline I, I just i don't know if it's a I guess I don't know. It's always been a little in- inscrutable to me, and I it's always to me that's where the movie kind of cul-de-sacs. When it lands in those scenes, apart from their sort of there's a big scene in the apartment, um, which I do like, but I sometimes I can see him acting a little bit. I I'm, I'm I don't lose him in in the performance as much as so many of the other characters, um, and I know part of that is that. Paul Thomas Anderson's part of his whole uh, approach here was he wanted to give a lot of these actors that he had had play big in in Boogie Nights, especially Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley, to give them characters that were much closer to who they were, who he perceived to be as people, and sort of take away some of the the heightened stuff that they were doing, especially in, in Boogie Nights, but also in, in other movies and and uh, work that they had done. So I appreciate that. It's just. Yeah, so if it ever gears down for me, if I'm ever tempted to, th- if I ever look at my watch, it's during those scenes. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I actually like those. I, I, I have my least favorite is a different sequence. It's a different, I guess, character that we follow. Uh, well, I'll get there. But like the thing I liked about that is um, we have John C. Riley as this hopeless romantic, and the woman that he ends up with, like you know, she's just giving herself away. Clearly, she's going through a trauma. I mean, I'm not. She's not just doing it to do it or anything but like and then you have that with uh, Tom Cruise and his entire philosophy right so I th- I feel like somewhere between those two threads there's a balance for me that I enjoy watching John C. Riley trying to pick up a woman and then seeing Tom Cruise saying here's how you should pick up a woman mm-hmm. th- 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 that kind of thing so so for me that's where it's sort of like um, kept my interest I'd say that's a really good point I hadn't thought about it in those terms but yeah that it, it adds something then in relief to the to the Tom Cruise stuff for sure you know, I kind of wish that the John C. Riley, the religious aspect, came into play a little bit more. Like he's so devout, and it, we we mm-hmm. have, we see a thing early on where he's kneeling to pray before he goes to work, and he's talking. I don't know. I don't know if we ever get resolution of who he's talking to in the car, whether he's just like narrating his life or sort of keeping his own sanity in check, or practicing speaking to like a romantic partner, or you know, <laughs> like as his wife, he has he's a divorced man, or if he's speaking to God. Like I don't know if we know, but I feel like. With the cross over his bed and kneeling to pray and his, you know, aversion for foul language, I think, or aversion to foul language, I think there's something about that that could have been 
addressed a little bit more. But again, this is only this is the span of maybe two two and a half hours in his life, and then or you know maybe a little bit more because they they get they they date after his shift ends. But like, there's a lot that happens to him, and I know that's not necessarily you know days and in, in life with him. But I just sort of wish maybe that element was played up a little bit more. Uh, Mike, what about you? What is your least favorite part of yeah. this movie that you saw, just saw for the first time? And again, like, I really, really enjoyed this movie, like, <laughs> to the nines. And it's not because it's here. It's because I just don't feel like there's enough of it. It's um, the William H. Macy as grown-up quiz boy. I feel like they do such a good job with the younger quiz boy that I'm... I want more time with the older quiz boy, you know? Because that that is the most clear-cut two stories that seem to have some kind of relation to each other it's very obvious to me you know like these are the two in case you're getting lost somewhere like you can compare these two kid the kid with you know he might grow up to be william h macy one day you know if he doesn't stand up to like his father at the end because his dad was like you know one of those crazy child actor parent types and everything uh so while i really enjoy what we get i just wish there was more of william h macy in this basically and his motivations or because you hear about all of like the problems that he's in and stuff but i just wish we saw him get into more trouble or there's that great scene at the bar where he confesses his love to the bartender and we find out why he wants braces and like that's super awkward and weird but i just wished every encounter that he had was super awkward and weird like that and you know and then when we cut back to the little kid it would be a lot heavier for me as opposed to when we cut back to the kid i think i'm a little more you know too worried about the host and and his cancer and the dad and this and there's a couple other elements going on there to contain that into itself so uh, again it's not like a bad thing it's just like kind of a thing i I wanted more of in this movie might have like just fleshed out a certain character more yeah i wonder if when if paul thomas anderson was going to cut out certain threads and whoever that was i wonder if he would still make the movie as long as he had it and add more to each character like would that make things more satisfying or would you hmm. lose some of the interdimensional like was this always like because apparently this was originally I, I, I ideated as a short movie and then just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger like <laughs> i wonder if you say you cut out three of the main characters do you still have a three-hour movie where instead of having 15 or 20 minutes you have like 30 minutes of the character like i don't i don't know or or do you or do you just keep it like a tighter everything is the same is it still a strong movie if it's strictly the Tom Cruise stuff with all that stuff with Phil Seymour Hoffman, Hoffman, the dad in hospice, the wife running around? Like, can you push that to two hours and is it enough for him to make the same points that he wants? I, I think you need, I think there's something like, even if it's not necessarily working, like, since it's all there, I think you kind of need it. Like, that's the other thing. Like, I don't, wouldn't know what to excise. I would just want to add stuff, kind of. There's, like, something about the jumble and the confusion at the end, I think, maybe, like, the overwhelmingness that's supposed to be there. I'm not positive. Again, it's very challenging. It's the first time I've seen it in its entirety. Yeah, one of the things that he really refines, I think, as he moves on to, to his other films, he, so far, anyway, has never gone this... I don't want to say this loose in his structure, this sprawling maybe. I mean, he's sprawling over time sometimes, but not 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 with this many characters, not quite in this sort of multi-tentacled kind of way. Uh, like he's this is his Robert Altman movie, and then he goes on to sort of do other things. And as he refines that his sensibility seems to sort of click into these boring down into a character instead of sort of skipping from character to character to character. You know, the Daniel Plainview 
you know, the, the, the examination mm. of that character in that movie or, or in Phantom Thread, like the two or three main characters in that movie. Like you spend enough time with them to really sort of get to be still be surprised by them, but to really deeply understand them. And I wonder if just me wild speculation at this point. Him today looking back at this movie and seeing it so sprawling and hit so many different characters, not shallowly, but maybe not as deep as he would like to go. Like you could imagine someone taking this movie and in the script form and breaking it apart and making like three movies out of it. I just I wonder if maybe that it has more to do less to do with like that part. I don't like so much. That part's too slow and more with I'd like to spend more time with everybody. So I need to cut some people out, some of the storylines out so that it, it just sort of would fit more with his with his sensibility today. That, that that'd be my guess anyway. Yeah, because doesn't he just go and do like Punch Drunk Love after this right. or something? Mm-hmm. Right. And that couldn't be more streamlined. There's also I mean, you know, we, we can talk. We could do a whole just podcast about 1999 as a year in film. There's something very 1999 about this, right? I think what you're describing is probably something that would would have happened in a year that wasn't 1999. That was a kind of a uh, a turning point year where the very notion of like what a movie is was really being challenged and how a movie is delivered and like what can sell and what can't and and what the experience of watching a movie is right that was all happening i think didn't i think run little run came out that year too i mean there's like yeah, so much yeah. and like it wasn't blair witch wasn't that awesome 99 yes. yep yep it's it's an insane year right like and and, and I, I think there's something about the zeitgeist of that moment that there's this movie couldn't possibly have been in a different year and had it not been for that year then we would have seen i think something more streamlined uh, where he falls in love with one of these characters and decides to extract it from the storyline and, and, and push ahead with a movie about, you know, maybe one or maybe two of them or three or something, but not this Robert Altman, <laughs> right, menagerie that we have here. And uh, that would be a real shame. I, I, I'd be very sad to not live in a world where that movie is, is not what it is. Totally. Well, John, while you're on the, while, while you're on the topic of uh, loving this movie, how it is, is there something about this movie that does not work for you? Is there something about this movie that you wish that was different or changed or better or anything? What's your least favorite part of Magnolia? There really isn't anything. That I, I kind of concur with um, what both uh, Tobin and Mike have said. If there's anything I, I don't like about it, it's very, it, it's hard to sort of put a finger on. There is something that is very like actors acting, uh, <laughs> right? Like in certain elements. I mean, we don't have someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie proves that he just like stands out in whatever because he plays like a nurse who has like no real interesting character arc at all really but like is still just incredibly magnetic and you just like love that character and you have no idea why but you know you have like Julianne Moore at her peak and you have uh, William H. Macy at his peak and there was something you know about sort of the the sort of films that were in that gray area between like studio movie and indie movie that Magnolia was one of where you have that sort of like indie movie acting at you thing right that you get from like mm-hmm. the 90s like what you know what Tobin says about John C. Riley, and, and I, I I definitely get that and especially like more Laura Walters who I actually really like a lot but um, I don't think this is her best performance I don't think she's in, she's very well cast in this movie. There are those moments. But I overlook all of it because of the inherent sort of weirdness and creativity of the I think it's the inherent vice of it all. Yeah, that would have been a good that would have been a good nod, but it wouldn't have made sense. But the way everything is just sort of like splashed out there in this movie that I I forgive all of its flaws. I have a hard time even seeing its flaws because it's so 
kind of like beautifully messy, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah, like right. like a like a Jackson Pollock painting. It's like, oh, if only he'd splattered it over here a little <laughs> yeah. bit, right? It's like, where do you right, what do right. you point to and say like that's kind of how I feel about it. So I I do I I, I concur um, with the the criticisms that have been raised. They don't they don't really mean much to me. Yeah, I, I I guess kind of in looking back at it in isolation, that sort of stands out to me. Uh, I'll tell you this, just I had a little bit of trouble watching John C. Riley now being so familiar with him in his like comedic roles, especially as like Steve. Oh, Rowe I and know. Stuff. And when the first time he did oh a comedy, God. everybody was like, what the hell are you doing? And like, you're not funny. You're a great character actor. <laughs> yeah. Get out Joey, of here. talk about uh, dramatic actors turning oh, yeah. into comedic actors, turning back into dramatic actors. For sure. Well, this is also the return of John C. Riley to Cruise Club because he was in Days of Thunder. He dropped the hammer with Harry a little bit on That's that in right. the episode. Oh, yeah. In that movie, and also I want to say that uh, in a couple of movies, in Mission Impossible Three, the Hoffros main man himself, Philip Seymour Hoffman, will return as well. So this is sort of a uh, nexus, a crossing yeah, sort of connection. I yeah. love that moment. <laughs> that moment caught me so off guard when uh, he answers the door. And I mean, I, I don't like that Tom Cruise wanted to drop kick those fucking dogs or anything like that. But, uh, <laughs> but just just seeing him and Hoffman share the screen, I was like, wow. There's like, yeah. there's it's just vibrating. Like the the, the frame is. was just like pulsating. It was cool. There are two other very quick things that I want to talk about. One is the deleted scene that I think we've referenced, or I think I might have mentioned earlier that there was. It's Tom Cruise with Mary Lynn Rice Cub, who I love from Mr. Show and from Sunny, and also I guess she was on 24. People 24, mostly know yeah. her from 24. Chloe. I'm always, I'm a big 24 fan, but she's always Mr. Show, Mary Lynn Rice Cub to me, so. Yes. So in the, it's like a three-minute short. It's on YouTube. It's If you just search Tom Cruise is hilarious, uh, you can find it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's also that, whatever. It, that's neither here nor there. But it is him on stage telling his crowd how to do it, seduce and destroy. He's basically the Dennis system before Dennis was the Dennis system. Speaking of Always Sunny, oh. um, he is you know <laughs> destroying. He's a, he's neglecting emotionally. He's everything. You know he is he's devastating these women. Poor Marilyn Rice Cub. So I think it's it's worth seeing. I think that's a very. It also makes me realize, and I know that there's a lot in every movie that is shot and edited in place to then cut out. Like what else haven't we seen that we would just love? You know what I mean? So I think that's. Number one. Also, number two, I just want to say Marcy, uh, the woman who John C. Riley goes to see at the beginning, and when he handcuffs her to the couch, and then she pulls it over the hallway, and he finds a dead body, she goes, that ain't mine! Like, that is just one... Like, I just love that so much. And that was another thing that was cut out. Apparently, Orlando Jones plays her husband or something, oh. her, her son's father, and he yeah. is Worm, and the kid who's rapping about the Worm did it, and John C. Riley's like, I don't understand what you're saying. He's like, I just laid it all... Like, I told you who did it. <laughs> Orlando Jones is the Worm. Yeah. He kills the man in the in the closet, and he also, he is the one who picks up the gun that John C. Riley drops. So, like, there's a whole thread there with Orlando Jones that's not in here, but I just love Marcy. That ain't mine! And also just the, the idea of these threads, these narrative threads being cut out of a movie that's already this long. Again, I don't mean to harp on that, but like there's so much like this probably could have easily been a close to a four hour movie. Right. Probably was shot and edited <laughs> yeah. as such and then, you know, pared down to what it was. So So um interesting little bit of Magnolia trivia re uh Mary Lynn Rice Cup. So she was dating uh John Bryan for a long time. Um do you guys oh, know who wow. John Bryan is? Yeah. yeah, so so he wrote so he wrote the score to Magnolia. I can't remember if it's this way around or the other way around, but either she started dating, dating John Bryan because she was introduced to him via Fiona Apple or the other way around, in that hmm. John Bryan and Mary Lee Rashka were dating and John Bryan had produced Fiona Apple's record. 
And I think that's how it worked. And then Fiona Apple met Paul Thomas Anderson that way. And that's why Paul Thomas Anderson and Fiona Apple were dating in the 90s for a long time in, like, the the most 90s couple <laughs> of, like, <laughs> sad emo But people. now he's married to Maya Rudolph? Is oh, that yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Uh-huh. That's a wonderful yeah. couple. He has, like, good taste in women, I have to say. Like, I mean, Fiona Apple's crazy and whatever, but she's awesome and incredibly talented. <laughs> I approve of both of his... Uh, I'm surprised his, he never tried to get with Amy Mann. Uh, no, well, she's been, <laughs> she's been with Sean Penn's brother for forever. Uh, she and Michael there's Penn another Penn brother? For, there's a third one. Michael Penn's a great, is a great Whoa. musician. Yeah, he's fantastic. And and they've been together for... Where, they, have first. they been hiding him? Because I, this is literally <laughs> the first time <laughs> I've ever... I mean, I of Chris a, Penn. He's a singer-songwriter pop star. He doesn't act. He's he's a he's, an, he's okay. a musician, but he's pretty famous. Oh, cool. Yeah, but so they've been married for forever. Um, I, they were certainly married for like 20 years by the time that she did Magnolia. So oh, um, wow. that was okay. that was that was never. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's all your celebrity cool. couple uh, <laughs> trivia. Yeah, all the gossip. Re, yeah. re Magnolia. Mike, anything about this movie that you want to talk about before we play a couple games and nominate this for some awards? Julianne Moore. She didn't win Best Actress this year. That well, wasn't even nominated. Un- no. That's unfucking believable because uh, I think this is that. I mean, she fucking made me shaking. Like I started shaking. Yeah. I mean, I was shaking for other reasons too. Watching this movie, like it got to me pretty deep at certain points and and things like that have been going on in this movie. Yeah, like just her performance was incredible. All the performances are great. But I hear what John was kind of saying too, where it's very sometimes it's it's very much acting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for you know. Also, also, Mike, I, this was this was in the midst of a lot of Julianne Moore like really really great performances. So. It kind of, I think, mm. got kind of lost in the shuffle. Like, the, like the end of the affair yeah. was around this time. Like, there's a tons yes. of just great uh, Julianne Moore stuff. That makes sense that then. But I also, I also think the uh, the acting style is intentional here to d- a degree, you know. And it, and they got the right actors to do it, you know. They got people yeah. who could actually go there and keep you from laughing or take or keeping you from taking you out of the moment or making you laugh when you should, and and just hitting all the right buttons. So I just, yeah, just a terrific watch for the first time all the way through. And uh, you know, I guess gotta check my schedule in a couple months and see if I can carve out some more time one day and uh, watch it again or something, but this is definitely one you got to make time for, but time well made. Mike, I will, rem- I will remind you, I mean, this is never going to happen because it's just never going to happen, but we had, we do had a, we had a uh, pun for a name for Julianne Moore podcast, more or less, so that Ooh. was... Uh, How did you ever come up with that? How about more is more? More is more. <laughs> Tobin, what about you? Is there anything else about this, this movie that you want to talk about before we uh, play a couple games? Yeah, the only other thing I would add, just to sort of piggyback on what Mike is saying, I would like to shout out the casting director for this movie. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah. Unsung heroes. Yeah, not just for the, not just because there are a lot of people in the movie, and not, not just because there are a lot of stars, but, be, but because, you know, as much as Paul Thomas Anderson in two movies had built kind of a stable of actors that he used, you know, over and over again and, and would continue to, the it's not just him finding these actors. And, and um, so Cassandra... Uh, Kulukundis, who is, has, uh, to my eye, has done all of his films since Magnolia. Ding! Uh, but this was her third movie. Like, I'm, I'm giving you a contender sting if, you, if that oh, wasn't yeah, clear. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and she, I mean, she did um, uh, Spartan for Mammoth. She did uh, Shattered Glass, one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and then all these movies, all these Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Um, and so I, not an easy job for any movie, but for a movie this this big where the tone is is going to shift so wildly and to be able to get all the mix right of yeah. background performers and um uh you know one line walk on characters as well as the the main actors and the supporting cast i just think she did a fen- phenomenal job so 
Well done. Well done indeed. And John, what about you? Anything else you want to say about this movie before we play a couple games? Oh, I just want to give another shout out to casting directors. One of the one of the great unsung heroes of of, of movies. I was just I, I don't know if you got so like I, I need to give a nod to casting director of the day, the, the casting director for It Chapter Two, which is maybe the best thing about that movie. Uh, <laughs> but whoever looked at Finn Wolfhard and was like, you know who you look like when you're older, Bill Hader, and I'm like, wow. Uh, <laughs> You nailed it, and and have you guys seen the uh, the the Haunting of Hill House uh, Netflix series? Which is I just Not watched. Not yet. This. Oh, it's it's phenomenal. Which just watched the second time, but you will be blown away by the work of the casting director who like found these kids and these adult actors, and they're all great actors, and you totally see them as like older versions of themselves. And the best one is that Tim Hutton plays an old version of Henry Thomas. What's so great about that is that Tim Hutton is like 10 years or like less than that older than Henry Thomas. And I'd never thought of Tim Hutton and Henry Thomas as looking like each other. And then you see it, them, them play it out in the show and you're like, oh my God, Tim Hutton looks like an old version of Henry Thomas who still just looks like Elliot from E.T., even, <laughs> even, to, even to this day. That sort of ties into uh, sort of a grander theme, right, that Mike and I always are excited about here on, on the podcast that we do when we have a young or an old version of the actor that we're following. Right, right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like, we yeah, just right. did Radio Flyer, which Tom Hanks is mm-hmm. barely in, but he plays an old Elijah Wood, and we're like, yeah, it could work, all right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, what's funny is Elijah Wood's about the age Tom Hanks was in that movie. Well, he's like 10 years older than Tom Hanks was in that movie. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't look nothing like him now. <laughs> nope, but you know it works uh, the time. Not so even that's, close. Yeah, yeah. That's the most important thing. Elijah Wood looks like a young Elijah Wood now. Like that's 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 Elijah Wood. <laughs> he looks yeah. like the kid who played who was Elijah Wood in the eighties. <laughs> yes. yeah. Firmly, firmly Elijah Wood forever. So now, John, we have, we play a game here. Uh, Tobin already knows this is coming, and I don't know if I don't I I don't know. This might be a group effort here. If Tom Hanks, our other Tom, was <laughs> cast in the role of Tom Cruise as Frank T. J. Mackey, oh God. what would this movie look like? Could it work? Or what I think is the more likely outcome of this conversation: What other role in this movie could Tom Hanks play and pull off well? He could definitely pull that off, and it would be fantastic. Like, he, uh, <laughs> I just like I'm just seeing it right now in my head, and it would be amazing. Do I, do I think it's the, the the first role I would cast him for in this movie? No, but I definitely could see like translate what Tom Cruise does into what Tom Hanks does, and give him all those lines, and give him that role. And man, that would have been great. That is not the answer that I was expecting. I just I thought it was going to be a first note. It's not no. the answer I was expecting either. And then I just started thinking about it for like five seconds. I'm like, I love this. Tobin, Mike, any thoughts on could Tom Hanks play Frank T.J. Mackey? Only in the sense that Tom Hanks can play just about anything right. that he wants to. But uh, I, I would cast him in, I think, every other role in this movie <laughs> before, before I cast him as, as Frank Mackey. That's fair. All right, that is that's a much closer yeah. answer to what I was expecting you know, to get. I'd say, Joey, if I had to, I would I would still go against type for Hanks, and I'd make him the uh, the crazy stage father of the little Ooh, boy who's okay. at the quiz show. So, like, instead of being America's dad and being like a sweetheart, he's he's the uh, the the evil America dad there, and he's like hustling his kid. I feel like the the, the first place my brain went, and I think it's sort sort of the not the safe choice because it, it underplays what the role is, but. I think the John C. Riley role sort of shouts a little bit Tom Hanks, like that's sort I of agree. Yeah. meek, yeah. mild mannered, uh, kind, do goody, Mister Rogers type, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I uh, 
I could also, I mean, again, playing against type the the William H Macy role. I think he could probably do that. Possibly Philip Seymour Hoffman. He could he could do that in his sleep. But Hanks is great when he has his like manic energy and he's like screaming, like you know when when Woody is like freaking out in Toy Story. Like that tone that we rarely see anymore in Tom Hanks when he's in movies is 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 so underused. Like, and it would be great to channel that into a character like Frank T J Mackey. I just I just want to see it now. I I want him to like make a video for the internet where he just plays out. And I want to, yeah, I want uh, Tom Hanks to say it to drop a real hard C. Like, I want to see what that sounds like. Absolutely, yeah, that will feel good. Because honestly, like, that's what we're having a tr- trouble with, right? Like, we're it's, it's oh, yeah. the, yes, the vocabulary yes. choice that we can mm-hmm. see coming out of Tom Hanks's mouth. But uh, oh yes. man, that'd be awesome. All right, one other game that we play here. You win the role of a lifetime, John and Tobin and Mike and whoever is listening to this podcast. You win a walk-on role into the film of Magnolia. You are either a new character that does not exist or an existing character or whatever. Very small parts, you know, a few lines at the most. Where are you putting yourself in this movie? (laughs) Guy who gets hit by frog. Uh, Frogman number three. Okay. No, I don't know. That's not my serious answer. Uh, Mike or Tobin, any thoughts? Because there's, there's, it's almost again paralysis by choice. Like, there's so much here. Yeah. There's so many scenes that you could be. I mean, I, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna put myself on Luis Guzman's team. You know, as, as the guy with perfect pitch. Well, of course, that's E G G. That is egg. Philip Baker Hall, of course. I would put myself as one of the pharmacists when um, <laughs> uh, Julianne Moore goes to try and uh, get the prescriptions filled. I would be a rival trivia kid to William H Macy's character, one of his one of his arch rival uh, trivia mavens from Quiz Show Mavens. Love when it. He was when he was younger. I think I'm gonna play that. Uh, I'm 40 year old hunky bartender. Whoa! Oh, of course, <laughs> Mike. Bang. With braces. With braces. With braces. With braces. Yeah, yeah. Well, with Invisaligns. No, just kidding. No, like it, it can't be Invisalign. Like, oh, I want to get Invisalign. Why? Because this bartender that this I, bartender I have a crush it. on has Invisalign. Well, how do you know it's invisible? Right. I just know. <laughs> just know. You can just tell with some people. You can just tell. A very important. Or two questions here. Two very important questions. I think the answer to one is no. I think the answer to the other question is absolutely yes. Does Tom Cruise run in this movie? I don't think that he does. Oh, no. If he does, it's off, so. it's off screen. There's not much right. running in this movie. There's a lot of singing and, and, and crying. But. It would have been amazing if he was running while it was his turn to sing later on in the movie. And like we cut to him and he's ring, and, <laughs> running, and he's the rain. Yeah. running yeah. and singing through the rain at the same time. I think it's, I think it's smart that he doesn't because it feels like all that energy comes out the way he has to kind of pace around the stage or even like sit down for the interview with the woman. Right. Like he's, That's what I was he feels right. like, feels like a guy who like really needs to get out and just run away from his life. <laughs> and, and you know, it's like it's all being sort of pent up and bottled and like bursting at the seams. It's either like running, running over the rooftops of London and like jumping off of planes and that sort of thing, or <laughs> yeah. right, like right. screaming about sex right. to a room full of yeah. <laughs> right. Like I want to see like in the in the scenes that we don't see, I want to see this character in like a gym working out. Like I want to see <laughs> like that intensity because it would be terrifying i think wait you're talking about you're talking about frank frank tj mackey i think him in his gym would just be like he doesn't work out he's just like naturally that like he does like that character does not work out he just like has a bunch of weird shakes that makes him (laughs) you know yeah that you could buy that he will sell you oh of course so a question that i think the answer is yes uh john we found on twitter this account harperfect said that you could replace Tom Cruise's character's name in any movie he's been in with the name Lightning McQueen and not a thing would change. <laughs> 
do we think true yes or no? I'm going to say absolutely. Would you, you I would don't absolutely... think Lestat could be called Lightning McQueen. Well, we had a, we had a big we had a big fight then because I was like, he's a vampire. <laughs> what is it? Lightning Lestat. Like, why not? It doesn't matter. But it's Lightning McQueen. It's a great vampire name, I have to say. But like, oh my god. <laughs> but as but as as motivational a motivational speaker, Lightning McQueen, absolutely. Oh, for sure, mm-hmm. for sure. Right. <laughs> Oh man! Any any dissenting? I mean, Tobin. I know that you were not. I don't think you were perfectly, you know, super fond of him as Lightning McQueen in Eyes Wide Shut. Possibly or, or past, you know, your past appearances <laughs> on here. I know that it hasn't quite, you know, lo- the Navy lawyer, <laughs> ma- Navy lawyer Lightning McQueen in A Few Good <laughs> yeah. Men. Maybe not exact. I mean, I say yes every time. But what do you think? Do you think yes or no here? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, for cool. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. 100%. Again, it's like Tom Hanks playing Frank Mackey. Like, I definitely want to see it happen. But, like, <laughs> I, like I want to see the alternative reality where that's the case. But I, I, I certainly find it jarring in a couple of in a couple of instances. But, like, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Risky Business, Lightning McQueen, sure. Mm-hmm. Right? Days of Thunder, sure. Top Gun, you got it. Right? Like, so many of them. Ethan Hunt, Lightning McQueen, whatever. Great. I'm going to do the math when we're done. But, Mike, we, we've got to be... Around two thirds, probably right. Like we're, we're oh we're yeah, we're on the more better than half. On the Wait, better well, side. considering comfortably more than half the roles, it can be Lightning McQueen. <laughs> oh, oh, I yeah. totally. I, I think the two thirds <laughs> guess is a is a solid solid guess. The final thing we need to do is nominate this film for some awards, possibly either the Golden Masks or the Fidelios. That was our our best thing from last oh, time. Wow. I'm going to nominate this right off the bat for best film and best role. Magnolia and yeah. Frank T.J. Mackey and Best Filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, that's so it's just nominated, right? So you're not saying that Paul Thomas Anderson is better than 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 Stanley Kubrick. No, no, no. This uh, is yes, okay. yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so I think yeah. it can fit into it. Can be yeah, it can be nominated. Most badass role. I'm gonna say no. I mean, it's a it's a badass role really? type. But it's also like a very really? shallow. Uh... Oh no, it's not badass. It's like all that badassery is like. It's just burying a bunch of sadness, and like yeah. it's not. There's nothing badass. Right. About it. Yes. But I don't know though. I, I, you, it depends on how you're defining role. Like badass role to take. Like it's, no, I guess we're not that. We're not that smart about it. <laughs> we're we're just yeah, we're just no, dumb muscles on screen. <laughs> Got it. I yeah. completely agree with Tobin in terms of like the most daring role, sure. like badass that he would that he would pull this off. And, and okay, and, so how about we do that? We can add another category, and maybe we can retroactively most daring role to take, maybe we can re- reword that, is whatever his lead is in Eyes Wide Shut, I think, uh, Frank T.J. Mackey in Magnolia. What other roles have we seen him take, Mike, that we can think of, or anything that you guys know up to this point, up to 1999, that is like, I can't believe he took that role. I mean, it feels well, like sort of collateral. Collateral is a couple years well, later, but like, that's that's certainly up there. Born on the 4th of July. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. That's that's a, That was a real move. That's a real move for him, right? Sure. Was. Yeah. That was his I can act... And then you have others coming up, but we you'll get to those. Yeah, as far as Lestat, it's I can't believe he didn't take that role sooner and hasn't done it two or three more times. I want him. <laughs> I love him as a vampire monster man. <laughs> He's great. Yeah, no, I think I think that's all that we got. So three so far, that's pretty good. Pretty good. Best fight. He does not get into a fight here. At least as far as, far as him versus table. No. <laughs> uh, best theme song soundtrack score. We'll say Magnolia. Best car chase race, no. Best dance scene, no. He does not dance. Best outfit wardrobe, do we want to say the hair? The whole... I mean, that whole ensemble. Oh, yeah. You kidding? That vest. It's an incredible, it's an incredible costume. <laughs> and then he slips down hair. to his uh, tidy whities again. And I'm going to get to that scene in a second, Mike, because uh, that's something else I want to I nominate. Best sunglasses, no. Best death, he does not die. Best line and best freakout. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. to both, right? <laughs> both. Let's go with both. Best line for sure. Respect the cock. Dot dot dot. <laughs> yep. And then best freakout is just maybe him crying at, at, at Jason Robards' bedside, or do we want to see yeah. him flipping the table? Yeah. Or, or even him just like like screaming during one of his talks like yeah like after the interview when he goes back on stage and he's all sort of fucked up in the head because she was like talking right. about his real history yep. and his origin and okay. he couldn't like remember his own material and yeah so i'll just say i'll just keep it simple mike i'll just say post interview in magnolia best mm-hmm. sex scene no he does not have sex most athletic feet this is what i want to do he does a thing in this movie where he's he strips <laughs> down his underwear and he does like this backwards somersault roll up onto his feet and i'm like i don't know what what yeah <laughs> that's one of those scientologist tricks that they tell you after you've been clear yeah you got to be ot level seven <laughs> to be able to pull that off i was wondering if there was major inspiration from some of those seminars in his performance here like he's definitely channeling some dudes oh. he's seen on stage before if you know yeah, what i'm like talking about him i mean like that's what he does <laughs> on stage in front of scientologists <laughs> i'm in love with katie holmes best running scene he does not run best or worst love story he doesn't really have a relationship with this movie best ensemble cast uh yeah yeah uh, then here's the difficult <laughs> thing the last one best this could be let's try to keep it to one best non-cruise actor male or female if we can only choose Oof. one person or maybe we'll oh. do one male one female if it need if need be okay who who's the best of the best in this movie other than Cruz? I think Hoffman. I it, you know it's even in a sm- yeah. small role. I think it's just so phenomenal in that movie. There's something about the subtlety of his character. As we were yeah. talking before, there's a lot of big acting here, and he's right. really the only one that's never asked or called upon to do that and yet he's still making as big an impact as everyone else right so i think that's a good call because like julianne moore is like getting to she starts like scaring me at some point where i was like this is amazing but like i'm having a reaction and a duly noted too i think i'm supposed to but with hoffman yeah there's there's something other about that i'll I'll put them both there i think that they're both worth recognizing right like they're just both incredible I think and, as, know, as good as she is and as good as Jason Robard, Robards is, they're even better when they're with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think sure. the, 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 like that's what you want from a supporting actor, right? That's yeah. There's that one exchange where he like she comes home, right? And he's on the phone. Yeah. He's like, hey, I got I got him. And she's like, what do you do? Like, don't do that. Yeah, they're both in so like such opposite places, like emotionally right there. And they just collide. And it's so crazy. So we have it for 12 awards right now. Best film, best filmmaker, best role, most daring role to take. New category. Best theme song, soundtrack, score, best outfit, wardrobe, best line, best freak out, most athletic feat, best ensemble cast, and then best non-cruise actor, both male and female for Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore. So who boy, Magnolia did not disappoint even a little bit. Uh, thank you, thank you both for joining us. John, you'll be back many, many times. Is there anywhere online that you want people to find you or do you want to exist within the realm of anonymity? I, I prefer my, my internet anonymity for now. I don't, I, don't, I don't really have much of an online presence. I'm busy, you know, teaching and having three kids, so. Yeah. You can find me at my house. going to come <laughs> over, have a, have, a, have a cup of coffee. But I'm not giving you my address. So just keep knocking on doors until you find me. Are you still in the same house that you were last year or two years ago? Uh, yeah. So I will. I have that address somewhere. I will be there. <laughs> just, just, just start asking for John. Yeah. Just dox. Just dox me. And Tobin, why don't you tell the listeners about your podcast, The Contenders? Yes, I have a podcast with my sister called The Contenders about uh, movies made by and/or starring fearless women. Our last last episode was Pitch Perfect Two, and uh, at the end of October, we're going to have an episode about. 
Late Night, the Mindy Kaling scripted mm, Yes, yes, yes. You can watch on Amazon Prime. Well, yeah. thank you both for being here. And Mike, any other final last thoughts before we wrap up and come back next week for what we're finally, very excitingly, finally, finally, finally kicking off our run of basically unimpeachable great movies by Tom Hanks with a movie we talked about on Tobin's very podcast, League of Their Own yes. from 1992. So we are finally, after the ups and downs of Tom Hanks' first 20 movies, <laughs> we are finally getting to a point where it's going to be good for a while. The stretch, yeah. Yes. Mike, any, any last thoughts about Magnolia before we come back in one week for A League of Their Own or two weeks for <gasps> Mission Impossible 2? Oh, no. I just uh, want to thank our guests for... Uh... Another great show. Thank you very much. I also can't believe that he goes from this to Mission Impossible 2. Like, I can believe it, but it's also like, (laughs) Jesus Christ, guy. Like, what is going on in your career, man? But for all things Cruise Club, all 21 episodes, I think, so far, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com, slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, run at cageclub.me. Come back next week, like I was saying, over the Hanks for the Memories feed for A League of Their Own, and in two weeks for Mission Impossible 2 with a new Mission Impossible guest. We're mixing that up every movie until we get to the era at uh, the era of Christopher McQuarrie. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was John Brooks, and that was Tobin Addington of the Contenders Podcast. And we'll see you next time right here on Cruise Club. You look Thank you.